Happy Valentine's Day. Oh, what a season. Oh, this is such a fun, full season in my life personally and in our church every Sunday. Uh, But it's also a heavy season, and we sing a song about God meeting us in our waiting like that. And I think about the different people who are in our audience who I don't even know. You never know what God might be doing in someone's life. And so while we do celebrate how powerful the Holy Spirit has been in these moments, we're also grieving. On January 31st, 2021, we had the most impactful Sunday in the history of our church, which for me was a little bit humbling because I wasn't preaching. We had a guest pastor in the house named Brad Jones who got up here at our 830 gathering and started saying, Giggum, Aggies. And it was a little bit uncomfortable because no one said, Giggum. And he said, but I'll say War Eagle and tried to create a negotiation type with, with you guys. And you guys were like, I'm not having it. But there was one man on the third row who said Giggum Aggie's back because he was originally from Texas. And that man's name was Mike Power, 47 years old, father of three, coach, uh, high school math teacher, an incredible man. And the crazy thing that happened two weeks ago, I go into full detail about this on our Grace Truth podcast. And you can hear me talk about it if you want to check it out. Um, But by uh, lunchtime, Mike was in the presence of Jesus very suddenly. And um, most of the day, we were kind of like trying to figure out what just happened because he had a conversation during the 8.30 a.m. with the guy who was preaching, and the message was on eternal life, heaven. And so we came back to the 4.30 and the 6.30 that day, and I've never seen anything like what happened in this room. People just falling on their face before God and surrendering everything to him. And it's not really about what happens physically or audibly. But you could sense the power of the Holy Spirit. Mike's funeral was that Friday. And the prayer that went out from this room, we have the funeral in here. The prayer that went out from some of his closest friends was that one of the best men, husbands, fathers, and leaders has gone to be with Jesus. What would it look like if the Spirit of God went out and raised up a hundredfold young men older men in his place. And so my message today comes with that story on my heart, but I also put that in front of you to go, if you think about it this week, pray for the Power family, pray for Nadina. Uh, Nadina's so brave. She's on our prayer team. Mike, Mike was on our parking team. He was parking cars at the 830 gathering and then sitting in here, and then he's in the presence of God. And we sang, better is one day in the courts of God than a thousands elsewhere to celebrate his life. But Nadina, she's strong. She loves God. She's sitting right there with like, like on that row right there with her boys at the last service. And just hearing me talk about love and marriage and praying for other people that what Mike's life would mean on the back end and his legacy going out would be more than just a service that we attended. So my heart's heavy and I'm like aware that the presence of God shows up and does things that we're not expecting. And I feel that way equally about Valentine's Day today. You might have come here and been like, it's Valentine's Day. We're going to hear a message on relationships. And and maybe we'll make some jokes and talk about single people. And we'll move on with our day. And we're going to do all of that. But I... (laughs) It wasn't even a joke. But I... uh, We're going to do all of that. But we're doing it in a way that I believe... uh, I've asked God to come and, and bless and multiply what he's doing in this time. And I think that he's going to... I'm going to preach a message today that's not from a sermon series. It's just a standalone, and it's actually the title of a song, but this time, it's not a John Mayer song. 
I know that's typical of me to go John Mayer with my sermon titles. It's not a Drake song, praise God. It's a song by Frank Sinatra, okay? Yeah, they thought I didn't even know who that was. I'm Italian, I was born in Philadelphia. You think I don't know about Frank and Dean Martin? And the rap pack talked to me. What's hilarious about this is college students are like, what is happening to our young, cool pastor? You want to you see young and cool? Google the rat pack later today, okay? The title of this sermon, and y'all need to pay attention in the lobby because we see you, is Love and Marriage. Love and Marriage. They go together like a... Yeah, the young people are like, what is that? What? I've never heard of any of this. Love and marriage go together like a horse and carriage. We're going to talk about romance. We're going to talk about dating. We're going to talk about marriage more than anything. But I want to talk about these two words. Even though Frank said they go together like a horse and carriage, they're very different. God is love. God created marriage. That's an important distinction. God is love. God created marriage. So love is not just like a byproduct of knowing God. Love is who God is. And when you have a relationship with God, you get access to not just the author of love, but the one who manifests love in a Trinitarian relationship. What does that mean? That means regardless of the season of life that you are in today, if you are single, if you are dating, if you are engaged, if you are married, if you are divorced, if you are divorced multiple times over, if you are widowed in whatever complicated season you are of your love story, I would argue The most important step you can take that is God's next step for your love story is a step toward personal communion with God because he is love. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. I know when we talk about dating and we talk about marriage, we love to get to the practical stuff and we love to go, hey, what's your advice for this season and how can I do this better and how can we manage this area better? But the reality is if you take a step of love toward personal communion with God, it will touch every other area of your life. Why? Because God is love. And he's not just love like eros love, which is like romantic love. No, he's love, agape love. He's everlasting. And when you have a relationship with him, suddenly that impacts the way you treat your wife. That impacts the way you go about your relationship with your husband. That impacts the way you go about your dating life. There is no advice that I could give you today that graduates from personal communion with God. And that was our answer in the View series for why am I here? That is a seed that when grown on the right soil bears fruit in every other area of your life. There is no secret to living a godly life outside of this. Pray and talk to God. Read your Bible and let God talk to you and root your life with community around you. You're going to be inconsistent. You're going to struggle. You're going to have sins that never really fully seem to go away until you're in the presence of Jesus. But you know what you'll have? You'll have a life growing on good soil. And you're going to have a godly marriage. And you're going to know your next step. And you're going to be able to step confidently when you walk with the God who is love. God is love. Second part. God created marriage. And marriage is not just one of God's good ideas that reflects his glory. Marriage is the most tangible expression of the glory of God on planet earth. So why did God create anything? To shine his glory back to him. God is a God-centered being. He's not even a being. He's God above all. And so of all the things God creates, none of them point back to the glory of God quite like marriage. And that's a bold statement because God has created some awesome things. How many of you, when you're in a moment of creation, you just sense the presence of God? Like you see a mountain range and you're like, God is here. Or, or you look out at a beach and you're like, I sense the presence of God as these waves 
hit. And we had almost a 50-50 split in the last gathering, so I'm going to do this again. I'm going to ask everybody, lobby included, to answer this question. Are you more of a mountains or beach person? It has to be one. This is really hard for a lot of Auburn people because it's like, oh, I love both. Which one is it? Which one is it? How many of you, I just want to find out who my friends are. How many of you would say beach? How many of you would say beach? Oh, it's going to be close. I feel like we won. This is me as well. Hands down. How many would say mountains? Congratulations on being second best. All right. <laughs> beach wins. They're both beautiful. Oh, I just love the beach. And every day of February, we get closer to spring. And it's like you can sense that we're going to get that like two weeks of good weather that we get all year in Auburn where it's not freezing cold or burning hot. And then we get to go to the beach. I love moments in creation where I'm like, there's something that reminds me of God's bigness, his grandeur that's like, I feel small. God created so many things to shine his glory. And he also gave us a multitude of different relationships to experience a part of his heart. He gave us friendships where we experience love relationships over time. He gave us relationships with our kids, with our siblings, and they're all awesome. They're all amazing. But there is no relationship on planet earth like the covenant of marriage. And there's no picture in the entire world that points more to the glory of God than a man and a woman in a covenant for the course of a lifetime, faithful to one another, working through all of their issues and sins and dysfunctions and staying one over time. The world looks at that and goes, God must be real. This is how Jesus wants his pursuit of us to be revealed to a lost, dark, and broken world around us. Now, everybody look up here and don't miss this. If that's true, God is love, and God created marriage as like his chief creation to display his glory on planet Earth above all things, it should come as no surprise to you that the main battleground of spiritual attack on your life from the darkness happens in this area. That shouldn't be a shock because it reveals the glory of God more than any other area. And so what does the enemy hate? Jesus' name being exalted. So you will feel an elevated level of oppression and opposition in this area of your life spiritually that just doesn't hit in your work life. It doesn't hit in other relationships, but you get to someone's love story. You get to someone's purity. You start talking about marriage and it feels like you're fighting an uphill battle. Watch this. You are. You are taking ground that the enemy absolutely does not want you to have in your life. And so if you're here today and even seeing that that's the topic that we're going to be talking about makes you a little bit uncomfortable, welcome to the club. Nobody walks into this room without baggage in this area. Nobody walks into this room without struggle and issues and difficulty. So if you're sitting next to your spouse and you were in a fight on Valentine's morning, it doesn't have to be, yeah, it kind of does have to be awkward because it's like this is going to be the conversation. Y'all got some stuff to deal with. I can't help you on that. But other than that, it, it doesn't have to feel weird that you're in a space like this and you're going, yeah, I don't have that area figured out. And I definitely would love to hear more about God's design. And here's what I believe could happen. I believe that through the word of God today, when you get a God-sized view of marriage, maybe the way you go about it from here looks different than the rest of the world that just says physical body, physical body, love one another as long as you want to love one another. And then whenever you want to leave each other, do it. The world's definition of marriage, it is a sham that they even call it marriage because it looks so different than what God designed when he designed marriage. And when you read God's design for marriage, some of it's going to make you uncomfortable. Some of it you're going to read and go, yeah, that doesn't seem natural to me. But everything you read about in the Bible, when God says something that doesn't look like your experience or what you would have assumed, you need to remember that you're reading the manual from the designer. 
And the one who creates something is the one who says the way it works best. And every single time I've ever doubted God's goodness by going, I'm not sure I agree with the way you say you made that and the way I need to use that. I either get burned on the back end because I didn't listen to him or I get blessed on the back end because I took him at his word. So we're going to take God at his word today and we're going to trust that his vision for marriage is better than ours. And I think every single season of life is going to be spoken to. If you brought your Bible, hold it up all over this place. Hold it up. Hold it up. Pastor Brad Jones was so shocked by how many people bring their Bibles. He has no idea that dating relationships get intertwined into it. Okay. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter five, except if you want a date tonight, hold your Bible up. We're going to organize y'all. All right. Unashamed on the second row. Love it. Ephesians chapter 5. See him after. All right. That was cool to watch y'all decide whether or not you wanted to participate. Hope that was awkward for you in the lobby as well. Okay, Ephesians should sound super familiar because remember last fall, I spent two and a half months preaching through Ephesians. And then when I got to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, I said, Hey, I know Valentine's Day is on a Sunday this year, so I'm actually going to save this. I hated not going into that passage because it's my favorite passage in the whole Bible on marriage. Every time I get to officiate a wedding, I read this exact passage because it's a God-sized view of marriage in a letter that's all about how Christian families are called to navigate relationships with one another on the back end. And so what is Ephesians all about? It's a divided church that experiences unity under the name of Jesus. And then on the back end, Paul's going, hey, you're one family now. This is how the family of God operates. And he gets to wives and husbands. But here's the thing. If you're here today and you're not married, I promise you this message is going to be relevant for you. Because... Ephesians chapter 5 verse 22 comes after Ephesians chapter 5 verses 1 through 21. I know that's so deep. You want to know why that's helpful? Because if you're evaluating a spouse, you should run them through the filter of Ephesians chapter 5 verses 1 through 21 to see if they're worth your time. Ephesians chapter 5 is like a litmus test for whether somebody is actually worth your time evaluating. And here's the thing about the Bible. The dating is not the the dating. <laughs> dating is not in the Bible. That's not the way it worked back then, but evaluating for marriage is. And when you read Ephesians chapter 5, it'll have a tendency of waking you up to whether or not you're lying to yourself about the person you're in a relationship with or the person that you're considering. Because a lot of people can hide behind a lot of stuff. And if there is one area that frustrates me more than any other area as the pastor of this church, it's so many young people who have a passion for God who immediately compromise in dating relationships and fade to the background of what God's doing through his kingdom and miss it. Ephesians 5 is intense. It says things like, look at verse 6. I'll just show you this real quick. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Oh, I come to church sometimes. Let no one deceive you with empty words. I posted my quiet time from a coffee house. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Do not allow yourself to get deceived by the pretense of godliness. You've got to run someone through the filter of, do they really care about worshiping God? And I'm not saying you got to date someone and marry someone who's perfect and complete. But I am telling you, stop getting so easily fooled and duped into these relationships with people who are pretending. If you got to wake into your worth in Christ and actually looked at this, oh, I did a message a year ago this weekend called Decisions Don't Lie. Look at the paths of people's feet, not the words on their mouth. 
If you watch the decisions people make, watch how committed they are to their local church. Watch the way they talk to their mom. Watch the way they talk to their siblings. Watch the way they go about their friendships. That's who you're going to marry, and that's ultimately who they're going to be. And you can check that out. Decisions don't lie. That was from Ephesians chapter 5 as well. It was Ephesians 5.15. This is amazing how God's been setting up this sermon the whole time. And if you want dating advice on top of everything else, you can actually send a text. I think we're going to put the number on the screen. You can text GRACE to 334-509-0500. Me and my wife, Courtney, are going to be on the Grace and Truth podcast this week answering all your questions. And it's going to be fun. I hope you check it out. But here's the problem with Q&As. And here's the problem with, like, I've got this question. Most of the time, that question is rooted in a heart that has already been convicted and told by God what to do. Make sure you're asking your question because you legitimately want answers, not because you already sense conviction in the other direction and you want to find an escape route. Now, the whole rest of the talk, I'm going to talk about marriage, so I'm going to leave you all alone. If you're single and dating, you're like, please stop. This has gotten all too real too fast. We're going to read Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 through 33. I gave you plenty of time. If you're there, say I'm there. Here it is. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Apparently, Paul's view, and I would say God's view of marriage, looks a lot different than two people who are in love and want to spend a lifetime together, or who think at a certain time they want to spend a lifetime together. God's view of marriage is about something so much more deep, so much more mystical, And it's revealed in Jesus' pursuit of the church, that the husband is a picture of Jesus and the wife is a picture of the church. Now, notice in the Bible when stuff happens that is weird, because when you get a weird order of things, you usually have an author who's trying to spotlight some attention on something. When you think about Paul, those of you who have read a lot of the Bible, Paul is very direct, very clear, and very intentional about his order. Why would Paul start a discussion about marriage talking to the wife? Like, if I know Paul at all, if he's walking up to a married couple and you're like, Paul, tell them what God says about marriage. He's going one place. He's going to husband. I need to talk to you. We'll talk later. I need to tell you this and this and this. But he writes to the church at Ephesus and he goes, wives, I got something to say to you. And these are verses that our culture cannot stand. In fact, some of you are in this room right now, and as I read it, it made you uncomfortable to hear me say it out loud because it feels so out of date and out of touch. Look at this. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, 
as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. That goes totally against our culture of feminism. It goes totally against what we hear now of like, yeah, that's, that's 2,000 years ago in the past when women couldn't really have jobs or come outside. Like that's totally irrelevant. The husband is the head of the wife and I'm just supposed to sit here and submit. What I would say to you is that you need to consider the context that Paul was writing this and why he does give instructions to the wives first. Because the church in Ephesus found itself in the midst of a city that actually celebrated wives disrespecting and walking out on their husbands. Ephesus was the capital city of worship for the goddess Artemis, who is the goddess of sexuality and fertility. And what had happened is they had actually created a culture where women's independence from their husbands and willingness to disrespect their husbands wasn't taboo or hidden. It was celebrated and exalted. And so Paul is saying something that goes directly countercultural against what they're used to and says, wives, submit to your husbands. This is what your call is in the Lord. And for every wife in this room, for every female in this room who has ambitions to be a wife, I would say this. Submission is not weakness. Submission is strength. God has created marriage to be this complementary union between two sides of a whole, not one who's number one and then one who's number two. These are two sides of the same whole, and your role in marriage has immense value. And I would also say, if you feel uncomfortable with what you've been called to do from Ephesians 5, did you read what Paul asked the husband to do right after he got done with the wife? So I know you read that and it's like, that's hard. And I don't really know how that works itself out in real time. But then you get to verse 25 and you read this. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Y'all do not miss this. These are some of the most important verses in the whole Bible on marriage. Paul switches and he goes, wives, that's your instruction. And I know that goes totally against culture and what you naturally want to do. And husbands, if you think you're off the hook, you're going to pursue her and love her and wash her the way Jesus has loved and pursued and washed you. And he uses this weird phrase, the washing with water through the word. I have read this verse at over 30 weddings. And until this week, I did not know what that meant. That's just total real talk. Sometimes you say things like that. You're like, wash your wife with the word. This is why nominal half-hearted husbands check out of church because they hear weird stuff like that and they go, yeah, I'm good. Yeah, I mean, I'm like, I'll go, but like I don't wash people with my Bible and I, why we got to use words like that? It's weird. But this is why context is so important. Remember what I told you about Ephesus? They worship the goddess Artemis. At the festival for Artemis every year, they would actually take the statue out of the temple and bring it down into the city square. Remember in the book of Acts when they were chanting at Paul, they were saying, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. This is their God. And what they would do with that statue, this is a little bit creepy and a little TMI, but I just need you to see this. They would actually bring water out and wash the whole statue. And the idea was that as they washed Artemis, they were restoring her purity and her virginity. And it was a festival loaded with sexual immorality, loaded with debauchery, so much worldliness. And what Paul is doing is he's grabbing a terrible example from their culture and translating it in gospel language. And he's like, what they, what they are trying to do and what they are trying to show is ultimately a sinful picture of what Jesus has ultimately done for us. 
that Jesus restores our purity, that Jesus is the one who washes us, what? Without stain or blemish or any other wrinkle. And why? To present us to himself. What does that language remind you of? A wedding. When does a bride get presented to a groom? At the very beginning of a wedding. The Bible right here is describing an eternal wedding. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but the Bible actually begins and ends with a wedding. God is all about wedding celebrations. And it's saying that what Jesus has done is he has not waited at the altar for his bride to be presented to him as they are. But he's actually gone before the bride to make sure she's allowed to wear white. Why? Because white is the color of purity. White is the color of holiness and blamelessness. But if the church gets presented to Jesus because of our sin, guess what, y'all? We're the church. We don't get to wear white. We should be wearing red. All of us have stains and blemishes and wrinkles and all kind of issues from our past because of sin. But we're not the ones who wear red on our wedding day in heaven. We're the ones who wear white. Why? Because the groom came down from heaven and took our place on a cross, and he's the one who wore red. He's the one whose blood washes us clean. So that what? So that when you and I get presented to God in heaven, oh, imagine this, imagine this. When Jesus lays eyes on you, he's not waiting to unleash wrath for everything you did wrong. He was the payment for the wrath so that he can be the groom who lovingly embraces his bride. What's your favorite moment at every wedding you get to attend? What's the best moment? When the bride gets presented to the groom because two things are present the bride's beauty and the groom's reaction. Do you know what Jesus' reaction is going to be when he sees us in heaven? He cannot wait. Scripture says he goes to prepare a place for us. That's language of Old Testament marriage when a Jewish man would propose and get betrothed and then leave to go prepare a place before the wedding would happen. Jesus cannot wait to spend eternity united to us. And so I bring that up in this moment right now because some of you are in front of me today and when I start talking about love and marriage, you have more issues and dysfunction and baggage than you know what to do with. Some of you are actively addicted to pornography. Some of you are on your second, third, or fourth marriage. Some of you have more problems in your marriage right now than you can count and if you got honest, you would be shocked if you were still married a decade from now. Some of you are right in the middle of dating and wondering if you're ever going to get your life in a position where you're ready to get married because of all these habits from your family of origin that you just can't seem to get rid of. And you hear me preach a message like this about love and marriage, and you see that the picture is husbands. This is what you're called to do. Impossible. Wives, this is what you're called to do. Also impossible. And it seems like this intimidating message calling you to do something that you can't do. But the good news about Ephesians 5 is this picture of marriage isn't about calling you to rise up to a standard that you can't meet. It's about calling you to fix your eyes on Jesus who has met the standard for us. And he is the one who does this in and through our lives because of his blood. Don't be intimidated because of your sin today. Don't be intimidated because of what your parents' marriage was like today. Don't be in this room right now believing that your love story can't be a part of a God story. I am living proof, y'all. Before Courtney came to be a part of my life, my love life was a train wreck terrible. I have a BC area of my story. It's before Courtney, okay? It was terrible. And the fact that I'm in the marriage that I'm in 10 years this summer, 10 years, y'all, getting that experience. It's, it's getting to the point where I can actually preach on this stuff and come to understand. I got two kids, 
And our marriage is not perfect, but the fact that I am where I am is not evidence of hard work and discipline. It's evidence of the Holy Spirit of God doing a miraculous work. And I'm telling you, he can do it for you. It's not off limits. But it's not about you rising up to the standard. It's about Jesus going before you and him being the one who gets the glory because he did it all. And he goes, okay, I've already done it all for the husbands and the wives. And now here's the calling. The calling is, husbands, you're going to love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And this is where it gets really intimidating and borderline impossible. Because Jesus goes, let what I just did for you become what you do for her. And every time I preach about marriage and dating and all this stuff, I love to talk to every season of life. I love to make sure there's something for the single person, there's something for the person in a serious relationship that wants to know whether or not they should get engaged, there should be something for the widow, there should be something for somebody divorced. And I I know I should talk to everybody, I know. But this week, I felt such a strong conviction that God was like, no, don't talk to everybody. Talk to one person and let everybody get hit through that conversation. So the only person I want to talk to today, this is so not like me. It, this is, I promise you, this is from the Lord. The only person I want to talk to today is a husband and a father. That's it. And I believe that through talking to the men that make up our church, everybody's going to be impacted. Believe it or not, it's the failure of a husband and a father to lead his home that has made so many of our love stories the train wrecks that they are, and we repeat the patterns of our fathers. Some of you, you're so angry at your dad for not leading your family better spiritually, but you've never thought to consider how that was never modeled for him either. And so chains get passed down. We inherit what we didn't see above us. And then you end up with all these wives who you could look at and go, man, she's just not functioning like a wife who can truly respect her husband. It's because she didn't have a dad who was respectable. And I'm not saying we're not called to, to be responsible for our own stuff, but I am saying if you look at headship as Jesus talks about it, you see why the enemy's coming for the head. The enemy is aiming at men. And I believe ACC is locked and loaded with women, young and old, who go before the throne of God and who are praying and worshiping with glad and sincere hearts. And you need a, a message for another day, but I'm just dreaming. What would happen at Auburn Community Church if we were locked and loaded with men who were modeling, loving our wives and our families the way Christ loved the church? And what if that actually happened? What if it wasn't just a theoretical vision from a speaker who was on stage? And you get a calling like that, and I start even having this conversation right now. I can feel the tension between me and some of the men in the room. Some of you right now would love to punch me in the face for talking about this on Valentine's Day. I get it. But I also want you to know that I read these verses as a dad and as a husband, and I feel just as much intimidated, if not more, than you do. I feel the weight of it. And right when you think Paul should just shut up and be done, he keeps going. Look what he says next to husbands. Verse 28. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. So not only nourish, cherish, love, and serve, wash. You can't even keep track of all the commands that are coming to the husbands. But you also ought to love your wife as you love yourself and feed and nurture and care. So the pressure on a husband is spiritually lead your family, model how Jesus has loved and served you, make sure they're growing up in the Lord, but not just growing up in the Lord, make sure they're provided for, make sure they got stuff, make sure they got structures in place, make sure you set up the home to function and flourish like a godly home. 
And I'm the first in line of a, of a man who's just like, that's, that, that's too much. Like, I didn't have, not only did I not have it modeled for me, but I'm just going to do the bare minimum of what, I, what comes natural to me and medicate on the rest. This is why you see men who are so good at certain things, but so disengaged from others and medicating on things like sports and alcohol and elsewhere. Because, like, he's really good at building stuff. That's not me, by the way. Um, he's, he's really good at this, but he's really disengaged in this area. And it's because you're reading these commands and men are buckling under the weight of what we've been called to be responsible for. But here's the good news about what I just read that you might have just seen and let it blow over because you're like, oh, we are, we are members of his body. That last part is the part that's supposed to get you. For we are members of his body. Another word for body in Ephesians is family. We are members of his family. Men in the room, young men in the room, look up here and do not miss this. What you need to be the husband and dad God's called you to be is not more discipline. You need more discipleship. What you need is not more discipline. You need more discipleship. And even as I say that word, I'm like, oh, that's such a, that's such a churchy word. We've taken the word discipleship and we've made it a Bible study and a set of things that you do in the corner of the church. But watch this. Discipleship in its truest form can be defined like this. Walking in the new family of Jesus with new norms. So discipleship is less about dropping your nets and following Jesus and more about being adopted into a new family that does things differently than the family you were born into. And that's weird for some of you to hear. Listen, in the New Testament, when you talk about following Jesus, that language of follow Jesus ends in the Gospels. From there on, when Paul writes, he talks less about following Jesus and more about being in the family of Jesus. And I'm not, I'm not saying following Jesus is bad. We all, to a certain extent, have to drop our nets, follow Jesus. We're disciples. Yes, yes, yes. But Jesus is not out in front of you physically going, hey, keep up with me. Jesus says, my spirit will come and live on the inside of you so that what? So that you can be adopted as a son into a new family. Here's the good news. God does not call you to do all of this. God calls you to get out of Jesus' way and let him do it through you. You didn't just get adopted by the Holy Spirit. You also get sanctified by the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? That means progressively over time, you are becoming more and more like Jesus as you follow him. Why? Because the Spirit lives on the inside of you. And so men in the room, I'm not up here to pick on you. I'm not up here to just give you an impossible standard today. I'm up here to go, we have a lot that we have been called to. Thank God Jesus adopted us and brought us into a new family. Because you were born into a sinful one. Even if you were born into the perfect family, you were born into a family that is plagued by sin. And what Jesus offers to do is over the course of a lifetime, he offers to adopt you and sanctify you, once an orphan, now a son, welcomed into his new family. And the more you walk in that new family, the more you can love and serve your wife and your kids as you're called to. Don't be overwhelmed. I remember the, the most overwhelmed I've ever been going into a season was when Courtney got pregnant with Aniston. This was a little over four years ago, and she, she gets pregnant, and I'm like, oh, gosh, no, I'm not just a husband who can't figure this out, but now I'm going to be a dad who can't figure anything out, and, and this is going to be embarrassing, but I remember we were, we were going to a pastor's retreat, and it, but it was for pastors and their wives. It was in San Antonio, Texas, and I only bring that up to say, I think San Antonio is underrated. Uh, Riverwalk, anybody? Like, it's, it's this super fun city that nobody really ever talks about. Anyway, no San Antonio fans. Obviously, the Texas people slept in, and they're coming tonight. Um, but but we're, at this, we're at this conference. Y'all do not miss this story. And it's all lead pastors and their wives. 
We're the youngest people in there. We were, she was 26, I was 27. And we're looking around the room at a lot of these pastors who've been doing this for decades, many of them pastoring churches of tens of thousands of people. And the speaker gets up there and he says, I just want you guys to know, I feel an elevated sense of responsibility to pour out this week because the enemy's number one attack against your church is his attack against your marriage. And I'm like, Okay, like I came here for some encouragement, not to just feel all the weight and pressure in the world. And he said, and you know what's crazy about standing in front of all of you? He said, not even knowing your names, I can tell the value of your ministry. He said, I don't care how gifted you are to step onto a stage with a microphone in your hand and talk about Jesus. I don't even really care how much money you've raised or things that you've accomplished or people who have come to know Jesus in your ministry. He said, I can tell the value of your ministry in this question. Does your wife shine with the glow of a cherished woman? And I was like, I hope she's shining today. Like, I I don't know how we're doing, what what happened this morning. I I don't really know what's going on. And all of us are kind of thinking the same thing. The tension in the room could be cut with a knife, kind of like this room right now. And I'm trying to disarm some of that. And I remember sitting there and being like, does my wife glow with the with the glow of a cherished woman? I I I hope so. And I, I don't even really know how to make that happen. And I, I only share that story to go, I have sat where you have sat and felt like the speaker up there is talking about something impossible. But here's the mistake that I've made for 10 years and what I'm trying to do differently and what I want to clue you in on. I've spent 10 years trying to create that glow and for the most part failing. Because the more you try to do enough, the more you realize how much you fall short and how much help you need. But I got good news for you today. It's a lot more simple than you think. Your wife will shine with the glow of a cherished woman when you shine with the glow of a redeemed son. Your wife will shine with the glow of a cherished woman when you shine with the glow of a redeemed son. What does that mean? It means the way to be a husband and a dad like this is not to have all your strategies figured out and all of your actions plotted out. It's to have your heart set on worship before God and letting your whole life become a living sacrifice of grateful praise to him. So I'm saying your failure as a husband and your failure as a dad is not your failure to do enough or be enough. It's your failure to humble yourself before God and worship. It's your failure to actually admit you don't have it all together and you don't have what it takes. And when you get a husband and a dad who's honest enough to go, I need Jesus and lives their life dependent, you're going to get imperfection. You're going to get failure. You're going to get someone who falls short again and again, but you're going to get someone who's quick to forgive and quick to ask for forgiveness because they know how much they need it in Jesus. You get somebody who's humble and submitted to God. I promise you that becomes the byproduct of every other fruit in their life. And if you're evaluating a future spouse right now, the young women need to be listening to this. Watch how he worships. What does Jesus mean to him? And if Jesus becomes his everything, his whole life will become an overflow of that. And so dads and husbands in the room, I didn't come to question you on your work today. I came to question you on your worship. What do you worship? Do you worship your money? Do you worship football? Do you worship your vacation or your 401k? Or do you worship at the throne room of heaven and count yourself nothing before the cross of Jesus? You do that, 
you're going to be an awesome husband. And you're going to be an awesome dad. Let's finish it. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife must respect her husband. Paul said, this is a profound mystery, but what's happening in marriage is so much bigger than one man and one woman. It's a cosmic picture of Jesus in the church. And here it is, simplified, love and respect. Wives want to be loved. Men want to be respected. And so men in the room, let me just challenge you with this. You can't love your wife like this if you haven't let Jesus love you like this. If you haven't got vulnerable and needy before God, you won't be able to love a vulnerable and needy woman. And so you let God comfort you in the secret place and it becomes the overflow of your heart to love and serve your family but the, the woman why is your call not to love your husband why does he need respect because God has created headship and what your husband needs from you more than anything what your future husband needs from you more than anything is for you to go before God on his behalf and pray for his relationship with God over time more than you complain to him or nag him about who he isn't your husband needs you to pray. And more than you pray for the changes you want to see happen immediately, you need to pray for his time with the Lord to be fruitful, for Jesus to come. Some of you are like, my husband doesn't care. He's not even here with me right now. You need to pray for God to cause a burden in his heart to ignite him to worship. And too many wives spend their entire marriages with, with, with like really good complaints he won't do this. He won't do this. He won't do this. But it's not going to be something that changes, at least in your heart, until you go before God and go, God, I got no expectations of what you're going to do. But I want to humbly ask that you would take my husband and do in him what I can't do by myself. You start praying prayers like that. And even if nothing changes about him, everything will change about you. Amen. And by the way, something will change about him. You get a praying wife and I'm telling you, you get a godly husband. You get a wife who goes before the Lord on your behalf, and suddenly, I say this, personal experience, I'll be with God, and I'm convinced, I'm like, you, you have to be so tired of me by now, God, oh yeah, my wife's been praying for me, I know you listen to her, and so that's why I'm experiencing you in power right now, and God creates these two loving relationships to do what? To not just compliment each other and give you a nice, comfortable, romantic life this side of heaven, we could talk about that all day long, but to create and paint an eternal picture for a world that's so desperately in need. I'm already out of time, and I got three points, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to absolutely fly through this because I don't want to just say that to husbands and go, good luck, pray, do something with that. I want to say something clear, so let me give you them as fast as I can. Love and marriage, number one, this is aimed at men, but I believe it could touch everybody. Let God's kindness make you tenderhearted. Let God's kindness make you tenderhearted. I want you to note the difference between kindness and niceness. Niceness or friendliness is generally aimed at the way you come across to other people and managing your appearances. Kindness is your ability to push them by the way you're acting toward Jesus. So we're not just talking about being friendly to pass the time. We're talking about paying attention to opportunities with people around you to be tender-hearted. And what, this is so crazy that this verse happens right before Ephesians 5. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32 says this. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. I'll be so honest with you right now. I have found more often than not in 10 years of marriage, there are more common temptations for me to be harsh with my wife or petty about issues 
than there are to cheat on my wife or go find some crazy addiction and run away from God. The daily temptation to be harsh and to let what's happening in my life or my work or my career, or my relationships impact the way I treat my wife and kids and take away tenderheartedness and just make me be someone I don't want to be. That's all over me. And part of that comes from the family I was born into. It's exactly how my dad was. And so I'll bring issues from home and I'll come home and I'll find myself so short with my kids and so short with my wife. And then I'll find her and me struggling with being so petty just about these little things that aren't even that important. You know, Song of Solomon says, catch for the foxes, the little foxes that take over your fields one little bit at a time. If you pay attention to those little things, it'll take care of the big things. And I noticed those are the little temptations, but here's the way you let tenderheartedness become a part of your personality because I'm not really a natural tender person. You can probably hear it in the tone of my voice. I don't come across very tender until I get with Jesus. And then I go from being this Italian, loud, passionate, somewhat mean to like, I'll transform into Mr. Rogers after being around Jesus. You ask people who work here, it's like, oh, Miles has had his quiet time because he's just over here being nice to and serving everybody. Why? Because when I take that stuff within me, when I take that stuff within me that I don't want to be there, and instead of taking it out on my wife and kids, I take it to Jesus, you want to know how he treats me? With kindness. And scripture says, God's kindness leads us to repentance. So I'll come before God and I'll go, I can't believe they said that. And I can't believe I'm still struggling with being so angry about this. And I can't believe I still went back to this. And I still, I, oh God, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? And you know how Jesus responds? You know how God fathers you? With kindness. And he throws his arms around me and goes, hey, I know you want all that to change. And I want all that to change. But can we just celebrate the fact that you didn't go home and take it out on them? Like you're growing into a person who actually brings it to me. That's something. I still call you son. Here's some adjustments that we're going to make. And then I walk away from getting treated like that. And I go home and I go, I'm so different. Not because I conjured up niceness but because God's kindness became my tenderheartedness. And God, you're, you're going to forgive me like that. You're going to talk to me like that when I am this kind of a person most of the time, when I wake up feeling like this most of the time. If you're going to treat me like that, well, my life is going to overflow with that to other people. Men, where you're missing it is not that you didn't conjure up enough good ways to talk to your wife and kids. It's that you didn't spend time in the presence of God. Is that you didn't go there. You didn't get to the well, so you got no water. You didn't go to the spot where life is. And I'm just trying to convince you today to stop going to discipline and start going to discipleship. Jesus wants to grow you over time. Let God's kindness make you tenderhearted. Number two, let Jesus' example make you intentional. Let Jesus' example make you intentional. Being a great husband and dad is less about action and more about intention. So men get stressed out when you throw all these actions on them. Do this and go to this and go to this and commit to this and do this. But if you watch Jesus' life, his impact isn't about overactivity. It's about being fully intentional and fully present with what's right in front of him. This doesn't take a lot for you to be in a great marriage. I know that's, that's not the popular opinion because it's like you got to read five books and go to five conferences. Listen, here's a start. Like once a week, ask your wife a really intentional question. Like once a week, go, hey, what's one thing this week that really bothered you about what I did and What's one thing that like, you didn't say anything about but was really good? Or even about hurt. What's the best thing that happened to you this week? And what's the hardest thing that you're fighting through? Rather than surface level, past the time, life partners who live side by side. One intentional question a week could revolutionize your marriage. 
And he could do the same with children. I am not the most action, servant-hearted, oriented person. I'm not. Like, I'm not, the, I'm not Noah from the notebook, okay? I'm not going to be the guy who builds the house. I'm the guy who meets with the contractor about building the house and goes, put that there, all right? That's, what I, that's, that's just me. You're dying laughing. But I'm telling you, I've noticed how little pieces of intentionality can create big deposits into the bank account of your marriage. Let Jesus' example make you intentional. And to know his example, you got to read about him and you got to hang out with him. Third one's going to hit the hardest of all, and I'll leave you with this. Let the Holy Spirit's power make you a new creation. Let the Holy Spirit's power make you a new creation. The hardest part about being called to this as a husband and a father is that you had a father who failed you in this area. And some of you had the best dads in the world, but still, if they were humble enough, they would say, I fall short of the standard of Jesus loving and pursuing the church. And so we end up wounded, and we end up in this place where we need to be made into a new creation, but that can only happen by the power of the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit can't identify what you choose to ignore. Here's what I mean. Pete Scazzaro, who wrote Emotionally Healthy Everything, like 25 different books, he makes this statement, and it's so true. He says, Jesus might be in your heart, but grandma and grandpa are in your bones. And what he means by that is discipleship happens by addressing and paying attention to what you were born into in your family. The areas that you will struggle with the most in your dating life and in your married life are the same issues your parents had. Promise you. That's not even a, just a biblical opinion. That's a scientific fact. You are going to be tempted to walk down the same roads. Your brain is constructed with similar chemistry. And some of the older adults in the room, you know this. You grow up and you don't believe that for so long. And then you find yourself, you're like, gosh, I'm acting just like my dad. Our marriage is, is veering toward just like our parents was before us. And it's not about just hating on your parents. It's about identifying those things and going, okay, those are the areas where I need the Holy Spirit to catch me and remind me I'm being made into a new creation. So no longer can you ignore what, has, what you've been born into. Why? Because you have a God who disciplines and who allows the sin of the parents to be passed down to the third generation. But you also serve a God who blesses the faithfulness of the obedient to a thousand generations. Oh, if you don't hear anything else I say, you need to hear this. In the Old Testament of the Bible, when God wanted to reveal who he was, when he gave the Ten Commandments, he said, here I am, slow to anger, abounding in love and kindness, blessing the obedient for a thousand generations and punishing the sin of the parents to the third generation. People love to talk about the God of the Old Testament and go, oh, he's so, he's so mean and he's so full of judgment. Guys, a thousand to three is the score. Three generations of sins landing in their laps. But what, what, does he, what does he really want to do? He wants to bless your family to a thousand generations if you say yes to Jesus. So God is not angry at you for the sins you have inherited. Some of you need to hear this. God is not like your dad. God is not in heaven with his arms crossed going, you are a failure. And if you would act more like my son, we could have a relationship. But you won't. That's not how he fathers. He is the most perfect, loving father who is going, I am just waiting to pour out blessing on your family for a thousand generations. But I need you to open up. 
I need you to be available for me to do this in your life. And I need everything to change right here and right now. So that's the moment we're in. I know I went long and I'm sorry if I ruined your Valentine's lunch reservations. But what's happening in this room might be a little more important. Here's what I want to do. This is not typical. I want to invite us to have a moment because we could very easily sing a song and leave. But what happens in this room can't stay in this room. So here's what I want to ask. I want to ask that if you're a wife sitting next to your husband before we sing this next song, would you just pray for him in his ear? Would you just let him hear the words out loud that you're for him and that you want his relationship with God to grow and flourish? Some of you, if you're dating and you feel comfortable doing that, I'm good with that. Some of you, if you're good enough friends with a guy around you, maybe you're around your kids and you just want to pray over them. We just wanted to set up this moment for you to be obedient with whatever God has called you to reveal. And maybe for some of you young people, you for the first time in your life will say a genuine prayer for the future person you're going to marry. That they would hear a message like this and respond with a life that's obedient because we need men. We can't have men that are so addicted and separated from any concept of Christian marriage. We've got to raise up a new generation and it starts right now. Matt and I were in Atlanta last week and a pastor said to us, he said, do you know the powerful thing of what God could do at ACC? It's so much to do with generations. And he said, I want you to think about this, guys. Most of the college students who attend your church, there's a high probability that when they have kids, they will go to Auburn and they'll be at your church too. He said, so when you see a young person's life change in your church, you could be watching the next generation change in the blink of an eye. That's the type of change we're praying into today and we're believing God for. Let me pray and we'll give you this moment. Heavenly Father, thank you that we get to stand in this moment right now. I pray in the name of Jesus that whoever this was supposed to land on, that it would land right where it needs to. God, we want to do business with you. We want you to transform our families. We don't want to be stuck in the sins of the past. We want to be set free for the future. So God, bless these wives as they pray over their husbands. Give us a moment right now we will never forget. In Jesus' name, amen. Y'all can make whatever you want to make of this time, and then we'll sing.